Encore episode. The startup who won Medicare's AI artificial intelligence contest, beating out IBM, Deloitte, and Mayo. Here's my conversation with Andrew I. Relentlessly seeking value. If I had a nickel for every guest on the show who went on to achieve wild success, TJ Parker from PillPack three years before they were bought by Amazon. Anyway, let me introduce this show with a clip from the recent podcast with Dr. Mai Pham. We were talking about the rampant and very open secret of excessive upcoding in Medicare Advantage that is costing American taxpayers a fortune and is very not correlated with actual spend. Here we go with Dr. Mai Pham. Do you have any thoughts relative to how you ensure that these MA plans that are becoming vast are still accountable to not game the system? How do you plug loopholes in a way that doesn't invite additional and more nefarious gaming? My fantasy has always been that CMS can develop or somebody can develop a black box machine learning driven risk adjustment algorithm that no one can see into, not even the payer. It would very much level the playing field, assuming that It was developed correctly, appropriately, and you used unbiased data. But that's the kind of system and extreme solution that I think starts to sound almost necessary given the state of things and the rate of acceleration in upcoding. So people may not have noticed that CMS had put out a request for, I think it was a challenge grant maybe, And they recently announced a couple of winners. They were asking for artificial intelligence-driven approaches to predicting health outcomes, which I believe is just the first shadow approach, the first step that you take in thinking about artificial intelligence-driven risk adjustment. I also want the audience to understand, it's not like we're talking about replacing a really superlative gold standard, right? The majority of the most commonly used risk adjustment approaches today produce a correlation with actual spend of only like 0.2. This is the best we can do. This is how we're deciding how we're going to spend, you know, a trillion dollars each year. Surely we can do better. And by the way, the winner of that CMS AI contest was Closed Loop AI. And Andrew I from Closed Loop AI was on the show. Q Encore episode here. In the original version of the show, there was a whole prelude about whether AI is or is not anything beyond an overused marketing pitch. But I think in the time-space continuum, we're beyond that conversation now. Don't get me wrong. Everybody still has AI in their cloud analytics platforms. And some of them are still, as they say, programmed in PowerPoint. That was a joke. But real deals are emerging from the fray. As mentioned, today I talk with Andrew I about AI. He was born for this job. Andrew is CEO over at Closed Loop AI. Closed Loop AI beat out over 300 rivals with their system that forecasts adverse health events and then plops warnings even in the EHR with action steps for clinicians to avoid the calamity in the making. You can imagine many things that CMS might be contemplating using this tool for, including as a control for false upcoding and all of the financial toxicity that goes along with that. 
By the way, keep in mind, all the top performing Medicare Advantage plans are using today, right now, some form of advanced analytics and artificial intelligence to risk stratify their populations and predict which members will, without intervention, become high cost in the near term. Others are using AI right now to do the kind of predictive analytics that you need to excel at population health. I get to ask Andrew some of the hard questions that have been bothering me about all the AI hype. And he set me straight a couple of times. Love it when that happens. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Andrew, I welcome to Relentless Health Value. Hi, Stacey. Thanks. All right. So I'm assuming most predictive analytics is based on math that helps predict something, you know, which patients are going to be the most expensive, which patients are the most likely to be readmitted, which patients are most likely to have some kind of catastrophic health event. Right. I can't afford to put everyone in care management. I can't afford to do home site visits for everyone. I can't afford to send free Uber rides for everyone. And so the goal is before they become expensive, find all the people who are most likely to be expensive. Is the value then effectively heading off bad things. You got it. So it usually falls into a few categories of use cases. One is population health. We want to identify that top 5% of our population that's going to drive 50% of our costs. So if I'm a value-based provider, an ACO, a clinically integrated network, or if I'm on the payer side, and so I've built out intervention programs that are designed to help with things like controlling chronic disease or preventing admissions or readmissions or getting people to go to primary care instead of the ER. And the question is, how do I find the people who are most going to benefit? So that's pop health. Then you've got, even if I'm still operating in a fee-for-service world, you've got all these quality metrics. You may not be getting reimbursed for certain things if you have negative events. So for example, sepsis or pressure ulcers. And so you want to identify those patients on the front end that are most likely to develop sepsis or a pressure ulcer. So you can give extra attention to those folks and try and avoid those never ever events. And then finally, you have kind of operational use cases. There are cases, take for example, staffing, where you wanna know how many folks am I likely to have, how many beds are likely to be full this coming Friday night so I can staff the number of nurses appropriately. Those are kind of some of the broad strokes or, or general buckets of use cases. And then you've got lots of different flavors within each of those. Let me just ask you a question about the pop health one. It's been said about the top 5% of patients who are the most expensive, that other programs have been, let's just say, discredited because the top 5% patients this year are usually not the top 5% next year. And sometimes programs claim that they're really successful, you know, by knocking the top 5% of patients this year out of the top 5% next year. But then you'll find that like 40% of them year over year are not actually in the top 5% the following year. So it's not, you know, (laughs) unless the program has 40% or greater results, it's not actually doing anything. How does that intersect with, you know, how does AI or what you're doing do that better? Yeah, so you're hitting on two important points here. One is this oversimplification of how people think about risk. One of the first things that I've noticed in the the health industry is that people just talk about risk and who's high risk. But if you drill into that and just ask one simple question, risk of what? You know, a lot of people, their eyes glaze over or they freak out, right? They don't actually know. It's just this high level concept of risk. Generally, what people are talking about is risk of being expensive, risk of high utilization. As you've pointed out, prior utilization 
how expensive I was last year turns out to be a really bad indicator of whether or not I'm going to be expensive this year. So the first point is, if you actually take a machine learning approach to this or do any statistical analysis, you're going to find out that what drives cost is not primarily how expensive I was last year. That's the first point. The second thing to kind of think about is when you want to look at intervention efficacy, right? So what you kind of touched on there was, how do I know if this program really worked or not? The way to do that, and you see this in the insurance industry, and and plenty of folks know how to do the math of this, but basically you need to look at the risk-adjusted outcomes. So given that I know, in general, people who have these attributes, people who have a high BMI or people who have comorbid conditions, that these people are more likely to be admitted, now I need to look at how did I reduce the actual admissions within that population? And so the whole key is being able to know on an individual patient basis, how likely was this person to have a negative health outcome before I intervened? And then out of the people I intervened on, how many had that negative health outcome? And now you can actually calculate, did you have an impact or not based on that predicted risk versus actual outcomes? Are there any examples of real life case studies where this approach has been deployed and has been successful? 100%. I mean, staying on this theme of population health, there's a public scorecard for this. So if you look at the top performers in CMS's program here in the Medicare space, the Medicare Shared Savings Program, the top performers are all doing some type of advanced risk stratification to complement their intervention programs. If you're just using LACE scores to try and predict admissions, you are behind the curve. Folks are definitely investing in this area because at the end of the day, The expensive resources are those people that are actually executing these intervention programs. The cardinal sin is I just sent Andrew to do a home site visit and Andrew comes back and says, why did I go visit Mr. Smith? He's totally fine. He didn't need our help. Risk stratification, machine learning, all of these technologies are really critical to targeting those interventions to the right patients. The promise of artificial intelligence, for one, is that it improves over time, you know, like the the computer teaches itself. Do you see that those of the organizations, institutions, payers who are using tools like this, that they are in fact improving over time? So this is really important. You can kind of draw from other industries some analogies, but you're exactly right. This is the promise. The promise is not only that I can make a prediction, but that I can learn from how people react to those predictions. One of the big challenges in the healthcare space today is many folks who have been pioneers in this area have been building kind of homegrown algorithms. They're basically building their own systems to execute this kind of work. And the challenge is that gathering that feedback loop of, I made this prediction, I said Andrew was going to be highly likely to be admitted to the hospital, but then my nurse navigator or care coordinator overruled my risk prediction. They said, I know you think I should enroll this person in care management, but actually I know a little more than you and I'm going to overrule that recommendation. Capturing that moment that the prediction was made, but we were overruled and why were we overruled? Most folks aren't there yet. And having a system that can capture that information and fold it back into the next round of predictions, that's where things are going over the next one to two years. The analogy that you can draw is Google. So why is Google so good at search? And the reason is when Google started, everything was based on keywords. 
You'd search for a page and Google had scraped every page and they knew the density of keywords on a given page. But that's not what drives Google today. What drives Google today is they know what you click on. When they surface those search engine rankings, even if the keyword density on the, the fifth highest ranking page is lower, but if everybody clicks on option number five in the list, then option number five ends up at the top of the list. And so Google has this built-in feedback loop of knowing which articles you click on, and that's what actually drives search. The same thing is going to happen in healthcare, that when we surface these predictions, we have nurse navigators, care coordinators, physicians saying that prediction's right, that prediction's wrong then these algorithms improve. Just even the use cases that we have thus far, as you just said, all of the top performers are using some variation of this, number one, number two. I don't know who hasn't used Google at this point. You almost get mad at Google when you're like, I just searched for this yesterday. Why Why don't you know what I'm misspelling right, right the now? creepy factor. <laughs> that all being the case, what are the objections then? You know, like, why isn't everybody wildly running to embrace this technology, you know, why the trough of <laughs> disillusionment? Well, you know, this idea of money ball for healthcare has been around for a long time. And so I think there's been a, a number of kind of starts and stops and folks have become a bit disillusioned. But I think, you know, when you look at kind of the objections that are being made today, and particularly around this keyword of artificial intelligence, it really comes down to a couple things. The first is AI is a black box. And this idea that well, those old LACE scores, maybe they weren't the most accurate, but I could understand how they worked, right? And I knew that the things that were going into those were things like prior admissions or comorbid conditions, and that made sense to me. And when you go to the opposite end of the spectrum for something like deep learning, oftentimes what you get back is, well, we don't really know how the algorithm worked, but you know, it's got a 92% accuracy. And the challenge is that's not good enough. You can't say, well, just trust the algorithm. Explainability is a real hot topic in artificial intelligence and specifically in healthcare. And there's a contest going on right now. CMS has published what they call their AI for Outcomes Challenge. It's a million dollar X prize that CMS has sponsored. And it's interesting because what CMS asked for wasn't the world's best algorithm, the world's most al accurate algorithm. What they asked for is, can you help us predict admissions, skilled nursing facility admissions and adverse events. But what we're really interested in isn't just accuracy, it's explainability. And what they focused on was AI that physicians will trust. And so there's a huge emphasis on this today, really focusing in on trust and explainability and getting away from this black box. So that's number one. Number two is bias. You're seeing this in the news repeatedly. You know, does an algorithm over predict or under predict particularly for some type of protected class, whether that's age or gender or ethnicity, really being able to demonstrate that we've looked at that. And is this model fair across all of these you know, socioeconomic or demographic classes? And then finally, the thing that we see and, and kind of one of the common objections, even if people believe, oh, well, you know, I, I think you've addressed the bias thing, or I think you've addressed the black box thing is, well, but, you know, we're just not ready for that because our data is too messy. And it's interesting how different folks in the healthcare industry think that that's a unique problem for them. You know, we have a term for that around the office. We call it data shaming. And what we like to say, your messy healthcare data is beautiful and useful just the way it is. You can understand that even if I've got incomplete data, even if people aren't 100% coded exactly correctly all the time, 
you know, you can understand that if I see a patient and I'm trying to predict admissions and I know that a prior diagnosis of diabetes is a good indicator of whether or not they might be admitted to the hospital, even if I don't see that ICD-10 code for a prior diagnosis of diabetes, but I see that they have a prescription for insulin, any human looking at that would say, "Mm, this is probably a diabetic patient. And so in the same way, machine learning approaches are able to pull that signal out of that messy data and say, you know what, to the algorithm, whether I'm coded as diabetic or not, if I've got that insulin prescription, pretty good chance that I look like a person who's diabetic. So those are the kind of three big areas, black box, bias, and and kind of messy data that we hear over and over again. So starting with the last one first, a couple questions for you, Andrew. Do you feel like AI at this moment in time has the ability to overcome the challenges of messy data perhaps better than an algorithmic approach? You know, so for example, an algorithmic approach would be, you know, if then, if this patient has is coded for diabetes then, or maybe you add additional like sub roles, you know, if this patient has a prescription for the following NDC coded, blah, blah, blah. Anyone who has tried to do that, and I have, understands that it gets and it turns into a hairball in like T minus 10 seconds. You know, like you get rules that contradict, you can't keep up with it. There's always something new. There's always something that changes. You know, at the end of the day, there's only three people that know what the heck you're doing (laughs) because it gets so complicated. That's right. Whereas it sounds like with AI, it just kind of, maybe you give it some rules to start with, but then it kind of figures it out. So you don't have to deal with just all of that operational madness. Yeah, that's right. If you think about it this way, the traditional rules-based approaches drew these really defined lines in the sand. So you might say, if a person has more than four prior admissions, that would be your rule. But if someone has more than seven, are they more at risk than someone who has four? Or if someone has three, are they more at risk than someone who has one? And so what machine learning allows you to do is look at all those possible permutations across much more detailed rule sets. I'll give you a tangible example of this that we saw in the real world. We had a customer who came to us and said, hey, I want to tell you, Andrew, about a case that just came up, which was we had a 13-year-old kid in a Medicaid population who our machine learning approach had flagged as high risk. The traditional rules-based approach that they still ran in parallel had said that this kid was low risk, and specifically it was high risk of being expensive. And so as they drilled into that case to see why is kind of the machine learning algorithm flagging as high and the old algorithm is flagging as low, the first thing that they saw in terms of the explanation was that this 13-year-old boy had a prior diagnosis of suicidal ideation. And as they drilled into the case further, they found out he had been referred to Child Protective Services twice in the last month. So here you have a kid who's saying, hey, I'm thinking about killing myself. And he's been referred to CPS twice. And the old rules-based approach said he doesn't need any help. Now, this organization had programs in place already to help with behavioral health. This is exactly the kind of person they actually can help. But the challenge is that you're not going to build that rule, right? That's not going to be one of the first things at the top of the list. And the machine learning process learned from the historical patterns in their data that a prior diagnosis of suicidal ideation was highly correlated with high expense. This is the great story, right, is that the right people are getting help 
when you get away from these simplistic rules-based approaches and you can leverage some of this technology, you get to find more needles in the haystack. And that's what it's all about for us. Okay, so moving to bias, and I did have a conversation with Dr. Kimberly Noel from Stony Brook Medicine, and one of the things that she put forth was, we're at a precipice here where this technology can either be a great democratizer in healthcare or it can actually make an existing problem much worse. And I think that's what you were alluding to. What's it going to take so that we achieve the former? The area of bias is really important. And there are a couple things that we can do. So the first is it is pretty easy if you take the time to do it to analyze your predictions across protected classes and across really any variable and see, are you over predicting or under predicting a given outcome for folks of a certain ethnicity, folks of a certain gender, folks of a certain age? So the first thing is just situational awareness to not be okay with just pushing out an algorithm that is accurate on average without looking at, is it accurate across these important subgroups? So that's issue number one. But fundamentally, the question becomes, well, what do I do when my model is biased? What do I do when I pull back the covers and I realize, wow, I'm doing a really poor job of predicting for this certain class? And the answer there is better input data. Oftentimes, the reason that these models can become biased is that we just don't have enough information on the folks who are underrepresented. Folks who are less frequent consumers of the healthcare system have less data. And so how do we solve for that problem? This is really about you know, collecting new information, using things like social determinants of health and where do I live, environmental factors that we can find that are also correlated with health outcomes, and just leveraging some of that publicly available data today. And then where does this go over the next few years? If you look at initiatives like allofus.org. A great example of bias is genetic testing. There just isn't enough historical genetic testing for folks in lower socioeconomic you know, classes. The opportunity there is to make a concerted effort to collect more information on folks who historically haven't engaged with the system or haven't had the resources to get those genetic tests in the past. So I think in the short term, this is all about using all of the available data and being aware of bias. And in the longer term, it's about collecting really rich information on more people. And I did interview a medical director from the All of Us initiative a couple of years ago. If anyone is interested in learning more about that, it it really is very worthwhile. You know, so it, it sounds like effectively what's happening here, even in the example that you gave, is that what the technology is doing or has the potential to do, unfortunately, is amplify existing bias with biases within the system. And I don't think anyone would argue that the system is already incredibly biased. Pick exactly like you said, certain subpopulations and there's including women, and you will find overwhelming evidence that that's the case. What they say, and this is whether you're talking about self-driving cars or you're talking about healthcare, you know, it, it's often been said that the technology has to be 10 times better than the human equivalent in order for it to be accepted. So maybe we're kind of in that messy middle where it hasn't achieved the 10x. So people are fearful of uh, deploying it. You know, I think it's a little different. I think that the analogy of self-driving cars, the challenge is I either want to drive my car or I want to not have to drive my car, Right. And if I'm going to not drive my car, then the car needs to be 10 times better than me at driving because, you know, people make mistakes, but I'm not going to allow a computer to cause a car accident. I think when it comes to artificial intelligence, machine learning, predictive analytics, and healthcare, the bigger travesty, the bigger sin 
is to not use this technology now. Because the truth is, when you're trying to figure out who should get that home site visit, if you say, well, I'm just afraid of machine learning or I'm just afraid of artificial intelligence and so I'm just not going to do that, and I'm going to randomly guess who's going to be expensive, then the wrong people are getting these resources. And frankly, our healthcare system can't afford for that level of inefficiency. And the opportunity and where this is different than the analogy of kind of self-driving cars is it's not the doctor or machine learning. It's not the doctor versus the algorithm. There's no doctor whose job it is today to review 2 million charts a day and figure out which 3% of those charts should go into care management. We're not replacing a doctor's job there. And so the key is that by better sorting that list, by getting the people to the top, and then including humans in the decision and allowing them to overrule, then the algorithms can get better. But more importantly, the combined answer of physician and machine learning, physician and math is better than either one on its own. And that's different than, than self-driving cars. I look at it this way, fast forward into the future, whether it's five years or 10 years, whatever timeline you wanna pick, can you imagine a future in which you walk into your doctor's office and they're not using all of your historical data, all of your family's data to better understand what's wrong with you or what they should do about it? That's an eventuality. It's not a question of, of if, it's a question of when. At the end of the day, do you believe that Google or Facebook level intelligence is coming to the point of care? I think that's an eventuality. I don't think it's a question of if, right? It's a question of, of just when. Yeah, and it's not like suddenly nine years and 364 days from now, somebody that's can be right. like, oh yeah, I better, where do I install the thing? That being said, there was just this big brouhaha in the news where Judy Faulkner wrote a letter really imploring hospital executives to try to combat the interoperability requirements, you know, because EHRs such as Epic charge up to something like 40% of digital health revenue to connect patient data. So it's not, it seems like forces like that actually impede because they impede the collection of large data sets, they may also impede the ability of an artificial intelligence tool to really do its thing at an optimal level. This kind of touches a little bit on what I think is also a little overstated in the world of artificial intelligence. There's this idea that he who has the most data wins, that the big challenge in all of these problems is that we don't have enough data to build a model. And everybody knows that machine learning is data hungry. Interoperability, the more we can address that, the more data we have, the more accurate models become. That is true, but there are diminishing returns. Let's take an example. If I'm a Medicaid-focused hospital in the South Bronx, and I want to build an admissions predictor, right? I want to figure out who's most likely to be admitted, what that algorithm is going to learn when it looks at my data is kids with asthma are really likely to be admitted to the hospital. Now, if I take that same model and I go down to South Florida, and I go to a Medicare-focused hospital, that model is not going to perform very well because the reason that people are admitted to that Medicare-focused hospital in South Florida is because of falls and broken hips. The idea that if I could just collect more data, then somehow my algorithms are gonna be better, that really falls apart when you look at longitudinal health histories because the reasons that people are admitted to one hospital, the reasons that people are expensive in one population are different. It's regional, it's local, and so interoperability helps, yes, because now I can get more information about my patients. But the idea that somehow more data naturally means I'm going to be more accurate, 
in the real world, you find out that that's actually not true. You can decrease your accuracy if you start looking at a population that isn't yours. It sounds like the trick would be to ensure that you've got longitudinal data, you know, so maybe that hospital in the South Bronx, they also, you know, most of those people go to, I don't know, urgent cares in the area or they work in Manhattan. So to have the connectivity with some downtown facilities or something like that, not necessarily some totally unrelated, you have to follow the path of the patient. You've got it. The more gaps I can fill in on the patient, the better. The more I can fill in more information about this patient, this is where interoperability really does help. But the key is don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Just because I don't, I haven't yet fully solved that interoperability problem doesn't mean that I can't do a better job with the data that I have. Before you worry about the data you don't have, focus on the data you do have. What is all the information I'm collecting on this patient that might be helpful? Can I look at their EHR records? Can I look at their health risk assessment, their survey information? Can I look at the call logs from my nurse navigators to figure out who's likely to engage with me? Using all of that available data rather than focusing on what you don't have is the starting point. And you're already seeing very kind of preliminary versions of this already, whether it's, you know, admission discharge and transfer feeds and health information exchanges, you know, that can get us some subset of data or whether it's things like Blue Button 2.0 or Apple Health Kit that are putting that data in the hands of the patient. That's where I see this going is I'm going to show up with my own health records and say, you better use all this information, right? Because I want the best care you can give me. I have an incentive as a patient to bring that data to the table. So I think we're headed in the right direction there, but I don't like seeing folks on the sidelines saying, well, we can't even tackle that problem until we have data X. You're running your business today. And whatever data you're using to run your business, that data has predictive signal and you can use it to provide better patient care. I'm inferring, Andrew, based on what you said rather explicitly, (laughs) that if I'm interested in exploring how AI, you know, I'm a provider organization or a payer organization, maybe even employer, I have a data set, you know, step one is take stock of what data I do have. What do I do next? You know, is there some sort of prescribed checklist or something, you know, like what do I have to have done before I pick up the phone and call a group such as Closed Loop or, you know, an AI team? The first point is kind of get started now, right? That you can pick up the phone and you can explore this and you don't need to go hire some huge consulting organization and you don't have to have a $3 million budget in order to get started. One of the things that we focused on at Closed Loop is this, we call a 24-hour uh, proof of concept. For us, because we've done so much automation around handling common healthcare data types, claims, EHR, ADT, labs, we can onboard a customer's data and build a new predictive model based on whatever data sets they send us in as little as 24 hours, particularly for these common healthcare use cases, right? Everybody wants to predict admissions, readmissions, ED utilization, sepsis, pressure ulcers, no-shows for appointments. The things that people want to predict their real financial or quality needle movers are pretty well known. And the answer is you don't have to do a lot of legwork. You don't have to do a lot of data prep. You don't have to do a lot of this. Really, you can get started, you know, just by by identifying what is it that I want to predict and what am I going to do differently? That's actually the key question. Why do I want to predict this thing and what am I going to do differently if I can predict it? If you know those two things, everything else falls into place. So Andrew, where can people find out more about Closed Loop if they are interested in doing so? Sure, it's closedloop.ai. 
yeah, we'd be happy to answer any questions. Andrew, I thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Stacey, thanks so much. It was great chatting with you. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.